1: Ian Crane joins me on in discussion. An ex oil field executive, he lectures and writes on the geopolitical webs that are being spun, with particular focus on US hegemony and the NWO agenda for control of global resources. Since 2007, he's focused his efforts on raising public awareness of the pernicious attack on the global population in the name of corporate globalization and harmonization, with particular focus on the excesses of Codex Alimentarius. He's also an independent researcher, and his views are expressed in the talks and DVDs that are based entirely upon his personal knowledge and research. Prior to his retirement from the corporate arena, he enjoyed a career of some 25 years in telecommunications and international oil field services, a career that provided the opportunity to live and work in the United Kingdom, continental Europe, the Middle East and also the United States. Ian Crane Welcome to In Discussion. It's a pleasure to have Ian Crane joining me again today. Ian, how are you today, sir?
2: I'm good, David. Good to speak to you again.
1: And Pat O'Brien, a investigative journalist. Pat O'Brien, welcome. It's good to be with you, David. Always. Ian, let's jump straight into this, the BP oil spill situation. Uh, what are your feelings now?
2: Well, I I think that the magnitude, of course, of the aftermath is being deliberately suppressed. I mean, you know, what is very, very interesting is that the official statistic uh, of the U.S. media for the months of May, June and July is that the Gulf Coast disaster accounted for 44 percent of all news coverage in the U.S. media, which is absolutely staggering. I mean, the percentage in Europe was was an, a, a fraction of that, um, because as we'll perhaps discuss a bit later, there was a deliberate attempt, for a number of reasons, to uh, completely downplay the whole of the uh, the drama in Europe. But in the Gulf Coast, obviously, for the first three months, uh, it was being um, broadcast uh, throughout the states. But um, the moment that BP announced in late July that they had capped the well it was almost a case of right that's it it's all done it's all dusted problem over nothing to see here move on when of course in reality as as many of us had been trying to point out for a number of weeks um, you know the uh, the full effects of the disaster had not yet even been comprehended by the majority of people outside of the uh, the Gulf Coast
1: it seems to me, Ian, being over on the West Coast in Los Angeles, the very few people knew about it even then, and I suspect that many don't uh, think about it now. It does amaze me, and I'm not as clear. I don't have as much clarity on the situation in Europe. But certainly here now, it is, as you say, done and dusted. It's not a news item. Uh, Pat O'Brien, uh, in the last several days, has been investigating this. Is not something that's even mentioned in the networks, uh, either in Florida or Louisiana. What is it about the Corexit do you think, that was suppressed? Why was it suppressed so quickly and yet used so heavily in this situation?
2: Well, I think that uh, as many of us uh, perceived right from the outset, this is, and I, I use the present tense deliberately, it is a population reduction event. Um, I mean, I think we need to actually perhaps take a pace back and and understand that this was, in my considered opinion, um, a deliberately contrived event. Now, I've recently released a a DVD called Project Zion, which is a recording of a presentation that I gave in Santa Cruz, California, on uh, May the 15th of last year. And, and even at that event, three weeks after the uh, the BP disaster, um, after the rig exploded and sunk, I was still not totally convinced. I hadn't got all the pieces of the jigsaw to state categorically that it was a contrived event. So, in fact, in that uh, DVD presentation, I, uh, I deliberately avoid making any comment about uh, the BP disaster because I was beginning to suspect that it was deliberate, but I was still missing um, an important piece of the jigsaw. And a week after I came back from California, the final piece of the jigsaw fell into place. And um, let me explain, of course, that I spent 20 years with Schlumberger, who is, uh, which is an oil field services company. And Schlumberger were on the rig. Schlumberger were on the rig to conduct what's called the cement bond log, the CBL test. Um, and this is a, a part of the process that is conducted immediately prior to the well effectively being certified as um, able to go into production. Now, as, as we know, and, and as I was um, stating right from the outset, you know, there were major problems with the cementing operation. And in fact, uh, you know, there's a lot of information that is is not being properly reported. And there is a lot of collusion, of course, between particularly BP, Halliburton and Transocean as they all attempt to uh, mitigate their respective uh, levels of responsibility. But what happened was that the the cementing job was compromised. We know that. I mean, it's a matter of record. Uh, Halliburton uh, wanted to put 23 spacers into the final cement stage, and BP stated, and we know who it was that stated this, it was a guy called um, Bob Kaluza. Um, Bob Kaluza was the BP company man on the rig, and he told Halliburton to run with just eight spacers. Now, this was an incredibly irresponsible decision. Now, having run with eight spacers and, and effectively compromised the um, uh, the integrity of the cement, Schlumberger were then Um, contracted to come onto the rig and conduct the cement bond log. But before they even ran the tools down the hole, they set up their spectrum analyzer um, on uh, um, on the deck, and they were able to ascertain immediately that the cement was not stable. The well was kicking. Now, at this stage of the operation, if a well is kicking, basically it needs to be shut down. And the Schlumberger engineers advised the BP company man, Robert Kaluza, that the well was kicking and it was going to blow unless it was shut in immediately. And Bob Kaluza turned around and said, not on my watch. Now, you know, we need to understand why Kaluza said that. Kaluza had only been on the rig for four days and Kaluza had replaced a guy called Ronald Sepulvado. And Sepulvado was one of the most experienced company men in the BP fleet. But four days before the rig blew, he was removed from the rig, supposedly to attend a, a course, a workshop in Lafayette, Louisiana. Uh, and the course was going to be on the correct Safe operation of the BOP the blowout preventer now this is ludicrous. Sepulvado knows it's ludicrous. sepulvado basically told the Gulf Coast hearing that uh, you know he didn 't really understand why it was that he was instructed to leave the rig, but it was obviously an instruction that came down from higher up the uh, the hierarchy and uh, so he um, you know went on the course, but he was replaced by The guy that Matthew Simmons, who ultimately paid course with his life, he was a guy that Matthew Simmons described as a 32-year-old punk, and he had no right to basically be uh, head honcho on the rig at this stage of the operation. So when Schlumberger um, uh, realized that this guy was not going to heed their advice, which is absolutely unheard of, I mean, Schlumberger are the gold standard. Uh, in the oil industry, and if a Schlumberger engineer tells uh, uh, a company man that the well is going to blow and it needs to be shut in, nobody would argue. But on this case, for the first time in uh, history, the company man rejected that counsel. Well, the Schlumberger guys knew what was going to happen, and they demanded to be evacuated from the rig. Now, there's two stories here. The official BP story is that the Schlumberger guys left the rig on a scheduled helicopter at 11 o'clock on the morning of April 20th. Um, but the uh, unofficial story, and this is the information I get from my uh, contacts within Schlumberger, is that there was no scheduled helicopter. And the Schlumberger guys were really spooked. And so they called their manager in New Orleans, and he chartered a helicopter and had it flown out to the rig and picked the guys up. And where everybody agrees is they left the rig at 11 o'clock in the morning of April 20th. And 10 hours later, of course, exactly as they had predicted, boom, the rig blew. Now, Bob Kaluza has pleaded the fifth. He's um, uh, he stated that he will not give evidence to the, the Gulf Coast hearings. And uh, his counterpart, who was a guy called Donald Vadrine uh, because the company men worked 12 hours on, 12 hours off on the rig. And Donald Vadrine has stated that he cannot give evidence to the Gulf Coast hearing because he's sick. Now, if we want prima facie evidence that the U.S. government is effectively... Um, a corporate controlled body, i.e. effectively a fascist state, we need look no further than the uh, Senate hearing which took place in um, uh, late June, um, where the Gulf Coast hearings under Admiral uh, Thad Allen sought the power of subpoena. And this bill passed through the the House of Representatives on a a vote of 420, I think it was, 420 votes to one. There was only one objection. It didn't even make the second reading in the Senate. So basically, right from the outset, the corporate powers made damn sure that the Gulf Coast hearing would never get the power of subpoena. It doesn't have it to this day. So consequently, the Gulf Coast hearing is completely Toothless, and they cannot demand that uh, either the likes of um, Rob Kaluza, Donald Vadrine, or the Schlumberger guys appear before them to explain what actually occurred on that day. So, this coupled with a whole bunch of other uh, um, events, all of which I describe in the DVD that I produced in July, which is called BP. Population reduction and the end of an age, because at that point I was absolutely convinced and I remain convinced that this was a contrived event. Now, I'm not suggesting for one moment that Bob Kaluza was the architect, Bob Kaluza was simply the mechanic. He was put on the rig to make it happen. And, uh, and of course, um, you know, what we're seeing today is the, the aftermath of that.
1: Let me ask you, Pad O'Brien, having listened to Ian charting this period. How does the mainstream media in Florida cover this now, or have they never covered it? And I know that, Pat, you were close to Matthew Simmons. What was the situation with Matthew Simmons that brought him to such a terrible end?
3: Well, he was starting to say the same things that uh, Ian is saying now. Um, He had... uh, uh, tipped us off to many of the things, Um, for example the role of Vice President, uh, former Vice President Dick Cheney involved in the whole issue, actually running the PR spin on the BP story with all three corporations Transocean, uh, BP, and um, Halliburton. Now I just contacted Eleven television stations in the Louisiana market, and I put in, as you can do any search on any station uh, that you want to go. I put in BP plus Correctit. Less than in some stations, not even one time did the word it be used on the station. Most of the time that Correctit was used was in May. Most of the stations, uh, the one station that covered it uh, somewhere around 50 times did 50 stories. The last story they did was in September, using the word Correxit.
1: Let me ask you, Ian Crane, this Correxit material has left desperate consequences for the people, particularly of Louisiana. Is it that both the government and the private sector are going to completely walk away from this?
2: That they are. It, it is a population reduction event. And, uh, I mean, just like um, uh, New Orleans after Katrina, um, where basically they just left people there. I mean, there was no support. I mean, it was, again, a deliberate event, obviously, to um, effectively change the the racial mix in, in New Orleans. And, you know, we're seeing uh, this again. I, I mean, I know the area very well. I lived in Houston for four years in the 90s. Um, I was responsible for uh, a significant chunk of um, Dow Schlumberger's activities throughout North America. So I'm very familiar with um, you know, the, the area south of I-10. And it's not a wealthy area by any stretch of the imagination. The vast majority of people there have absolutely no health care whatsoever. And uh, BP is certainly not acknowledging any responsibility for the health issues that are now impacting, obviously, the, the people they employed on a contract basis for the cleanup operation, which was a, a sham in of itself, um, but also the, uh, the residents. And, you know, we know that this uh, extremely toxic chemical, I mean, Corexit is, is a toxin um, it, it's ten times more toxic than oil. Oil is a toxin at 11.2 parts per million. Corexit is a toxin at 1.2 parts per million. And it was not only being pumped directly into the uh, the plume of oil into the sea, but we know it was being sprayed. And BP have admitted to pumping um, one million gallons of uh, of Corexit, and and we believe that uh, obviously in line with everything else that BP have been telling that uh, there's probably not much veracity in that claim. It's probably way more than one million gallons. This is a chemical that is banned pretty much everywhere else in the world. Uh, It was used after um, the Exxon Valdez disaster in, um, in the late 80s. Um, the, the problems that it caused in terms of uh, uh, particularly respiratory illness, but it also attacks the, the red blood corpuscles and causes uh, severe internal bleeding and, and ultimately, of course, uh, accelerates the, um, the end of a life. And uh, the people in this area we know are suffering. I mean, I'm looking right now at um, medical reports that I'm, I'm getting from doctors and other researchers working in and around the Gulf Coast area. And, um, you know, the doctors in, in some cases are uh, you know just having to throw their hands up and say, what can I do? I can simply only make somebody really a little more comfortable because there's nothing I can uh, to do to treat them. We've got another problem here as well, which is the, the onset, of Vibriole Vinificus, which is um, a naturally occurring um, flesh-eating bacteria but for whatever reason it seems to be breeding at a phenomenal rate of knots in and around the Gulf Coast area and, uh, and already has caused a, uh, a number of deaths um, and one, once people get attacked by Vibriol, if they if their immune system is in any way shape or form compromised it brings about death literally within three or four days
1: what are the long-term consequences for the people of Louisiana and indeed other Gulf states like Florida?
2: In my opinion, it, I, and I, um, I made the same observation in a newsletter I sent out last, uh, last June, early June, um, in my opinion, the whole of the southeastern United States is potentially going to become uninhabitable. I mean, you know, we've, the correct it, Having been sprayed into the Gulf or pumped into the Gulf and sprayed into the atmosphere is in the Gulf Stream. There is uh, already a lot of footage available on the web of uh, oil corrects it mix coming down in rainfall. You know, there's reports of people in um, northern Florida becoming extremely sick. After swimming in their pools in late summer, and when they had the water tested, it was found to be um, contaminated with Corexit at the rate of 50 parts per million. I mean, you know, th- those people, unfortunately, um, uh, have probably compromised their uh, their lives quite uh, significantly. But this stuff's getting into the soil. Um, it's coming down in the rainfall. It's going to contaminate the uh, the crops. I mean, at the end of the last growing season, there were a lot of reports from all around the southeastern United States of unexplained crop damage. And, you know, it remains unexplained. Just like the birds falling out of the sky in and around the the southern United States, just like the masses of fish that are washing up dead on the the shores of the Gulf and on the rivers that feed into the Gulf. You know, this is is a major problem. You know, there's a lot of concern in Europe right now that the Gulf Stream has stalled uh, in mid-Atlantic, and consequently, you know, we're, we've already had um, an extremely cold start to uh, to the winter and it's um, anticipated that it's going to you know, get a lot worse before we get to spring. Well, let me tell you that I'd actually much rather endure a spell of cold weather than run the risk of what is in the Gulf Stream hitting the shores of northern Europe.
1: What do you think, Ian, Pad O'Brien and others in Florida and Louisiana could do at this stage clearly this is a very serious situation is it a question now of people actually leaving these gulf states
2: in my opinion that's the smartest thing they uh, they could do and um, probably should have done some time ago i know there are charities now being set up to help people who uh, live um, in and around the, uh, the Gulf Coast uh, to relocate to elsewhere in the United States. But I think this is the point that I should let Pat kick in because he's the man on the ground.
1: Your thoughts on this, I realize that you're very aware of these concerns, but what would it take to mobilize the states of Florida, you know, Louisiana?
3: I just saw a report that Jesse Ventura did. Now, he does a, a program that... Um, Kind of scares people on a lot of different issues, and uh, never really comes to a solution. But he was talking about a BP story, and part of the BP story was a allocation of forty billion dollars that is being prepared. Two billion of which is already been put into a fund to actually relocate people out of the Gulf. That sounds like a wild accusation, but not really. What has concerned me more than anything else is our media in Florida and throughout the Gulf states, and I've kept a very serious eye on it, are not talking about this disaster in the form of the chemical that has been in, that water. They're not bringing it up at all. Now, we know why that is. I have had it from solid executives at network level that if you use the word corrects it, and BP in the same sentence, you're going to be off the advertising buy. BP bought more than four times their annual advertising budget since the time of the disaster to now. It's all about the dollars, and the networks are staying away from using the word correction.
1: Ian Crane, does this make the United States now an oligarchy, that is controlled by the corporate mansion?
2: I don't think there's any doubt about that whatsoever. I mean, it, it's very evident um, ever since June when the Senate refused to sanction the power of subpoena to the Gulf Coast hearings that, uh, you know, the, the truth was no, never going to have a cat's hell in chance, a chance in hell rather, sorry I get the right teeth in here, of um, being made public. And uh, you know, consequently, I, I mean, I've been making the observation that Robert Kaluza is the person of interest. I mean, once, once you get Robert Kaluza before a committee that has the power of subpoena, because subpoena doesn't just mean you have to show up. Subpoena means you have to answer the questions. Now, of course, the reality is that the the hidden hand, the hidden hierarchy that I'm very well aware of, the euphemism is the good old boy network. The good old boy network will make sure, of course, that the the questions are never asked anyway. So it's a bit of a moot point. But, you know, the reality is that at least there should be um, an, an effort to get these guys before the hearing. And at least, you know, we should start to be asking who it was, who actually instructed Sepulvado to go on the the uh, the workshop in uh, Lafayette who took the decision to put Kalooza a relatively inexperienced BP company hand onto the rig and I've heard BP try and say that Kalooza because they've effectively eradicated Kalooza that you cannot find a photograph of Kalooza or Vadrine anywhere on the web and I heard a, a representative of BP, I mean, it was a legal representative, say so he wasn't on the BP payroll directly. But this guy was at a press conference and he said that uh, Kaluza was a 35 year experience company man. Now, you know, the guy was 32 years of age. So, how can a 32 year old have 35 years of experience? Kaluza should never have been on the rig, period. So the reality is that there is a complete lockdown here, and there's, a, there's going to be an effort, and there's already an effort. I mean, BP have already somehow managed to persuade Amazon to hide my DVD because I can see the BP population reduction and the end-of-an-age DVD when I go into my Amazon seller account, but even if you use the Amazon search engine and you put in BP or Ian Crane or... Um, uh, population reduction you cannot find this dvd and that doesn't happen by chance there is a campaign to completely eradicate the events um in the gulf coast of, uh, of last year from the record
1: let me ask you regarding the reduction in population this appears to be a george orwell scenario who is behind it and what is the purpose of clearing out the Gulf State region
2: well first of all if you want to poison the world um, from a single source there's no better place to do it than the Gulf of Mexico because if you look at the um, the path of the currents around the oceans then basically once you deposit something like corrects it into the Gulf of Mexico over the ensuing years it's effectively going to penetrate right around the planet so that, that, in my opinion, is the reason that the Gulf of Mexico was, uh, was selected for, uh, for this event. We already know that it's killing off the, um, the, the fishing stock from the, the, the Gulf. You know, we've got the FDA refusing to effectively make any judgment about the, the safety of the fish and the shrimp coming out of the Gulf but fortunately there are fishermen and shrimpers that have got uh, more integrity than the government who are saying well you know we're just not going to go fish and we're not going to shrimp because we're not going to be responsible for putting this poisoned food into the um, uh... the food stream for the u.s. because the u.s. gets sixty percent of its seafood from the Gulf of Mexico and, and they don't want to do the test. And once again, I encourage people to do their own research and, uh, you know, go Google, you know, fish and Gulf of Mexico. And what you'll see is the photographs, very recent photographs of fish being gutted. And the, there's oil inside the fish. And, you know, we've got many reports, of course, of people getting sick after um, consuming fish or shrimp from the Gulf. So right now, I mean, anybody eating uh, seafood in the United States is, in my opinion, playing uh, Russian roulette. But, you know, in terms of um, who's driving the agenda, you know, there is absolutely no doubt. I mean, you, you actually have to have your head in the sand if you can't see that, you know, right across the world right now, it's not just the Gulf of Mexico. We've got a, you know, we've got a contrived financial meltdown that's, um, you know, impacting in the, in the U.S. just like it is elsewhere. The Federal Reserve are, are trying to, you know, print, their way out of the problem by just uh, pumping more and more money into the system, which of course is just putting the US deeper and deeper into debt. What these guys are effectively trying to achieve and and unless something remarkable occurs, it looks like that they might well achieve it, is they're looking to effectively put the whole of the global population into abject economic slavery. And they don't need six or seven billion And they've stated categorically uh, just a little way north of the Gulf Coast in Elbert County, Georgia, that their goal is to reduce the population to 500 million in balance with nature. And I refer, of course, to the Georgia Guidestones. And, And once again, I would encourage your listeners to go Google Georgia Guidestones.
1: When you talk about they, who are you referring to, Ian?
2: Well, it's an, it's an inner sanctum. I mean, um, Professor John Coleman, who uh, you know, is, a, is a contemporary of uh, Carol Quigley, who was uh, Clinton's mentor, and uh, Professor John Coleman uh, wrote a book called The Committee of 300 in 1986, and uh, he actually um, uh, revised it and republished it just a few years ago in 2006. And it's an excellent book. And within that, uh, Coleman identifies that, uh, you know, this, 300 um, believe that they are the rightful rulers of a planetary fiefdom. And and that's a whole other discussion, David. Um, But, you know, I do address it. I produced a DVD called The Hidden Agenda uh, four years ago. And everything I talked about then, and some people considered that I was, uh, you know, erring into the realms of science fiction. But everything I talked about then is effectively manifesting today. But even the Committee of 300, um, Coleman identified that there was an inner sanctum of the Committee of 300 uh, who call themselves, refer to themselves as the Olympians. And, of course, that takes us right back into um, uh, pre-Abrahamic uh, history. But the reality is, whether, it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. The reality is that these people believe, they believe that they have a her- hereditary right to rule the global fiefdom and that, and that basically the population is simply there to uh, carry out their, their whim. And you know, there's a document that I would encourage people to to go take a look at. It's called the Report from Iron Mountain. It's a, it's a document that is um, some 50-odd years old now, nearly 50 years old. It actually came into the public domain in 1967. It's dismissed by the mainstream as a forgery, whatever that might mean. But this document, which you can, people can download uh, in PDF format, it's not a particularly lengthy document. It runs to um, uh, about 80-odd pages. Um, but in that document, you can see this think tank who are looking at ways in which they can effectively keep the population under control through fear. And the, the, the full name of the report is the Report from Iron Mountain on the Possibility and Desirability of Peace. And, and they, they're articulating the, the observation that basically they achieve peace by the threat of war.
1: Fagan made a long speech in 1967 that talks about history of the dark cabal illuminati charting it way back hundreds of years and it has great significance very well received a very serious document and rather frightening and i'm wondering putting it into context in terms of a timeline as to why this and others came out in 1967 so long ago does this have parity in with the document on the Illuminati that was created by Fagan in 1967
2: well at the time of course we didn't have the internet and uh, so the likelihood of any documents like this really getting out into the mass consciousness was almost slim to none Um. and you know, I would make the observation that for, for those people who dismissed the report from Iron Mountain as a, as a forgery, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, who of course is Obama's mentor, was either a member of the think tank team that put it together or having read it once it came into the public domain decided that it uh, it contained um, some you know real gems of wisdom because he incorporated significant chunks of it into the book that he published 3 years later called uh, between two ages the technotronic era and and once again i mean that is an absolutely incredibly insightful book i mean it's it's effectively it's the script for everything that is occurring right now so you know what, what's happening it may look to people as oh, these are all random events, you know, what's going on in the Gulf Coast, the global financial meltdown, you know, the wars in Afghanistan and, uh, and Iraq, and potentially the war that they're desperately trying to start against Iran, but Iran's not playing ball, thank goodness. You know, these are not in any way, shape or form random events. They are part of the geopolitical jigsaw, and these guys, this inner sanctum, these uh, the Olympians, as uh, John Coleman used to refer them uh, to them, they are running very scared of the year two thousand and twelve, and they have, as part of their agenda, a desire to establish a global government by absolutely no later than the end of um, december uh, 2012 and i mean there's a whole bunch of uh, things that occur i mean i'm sure many of your listeners are aware that the the current contract between the us government and the federal reserve expires on december the 22nd 2012 and uh, basically you know, these guys want to make sure that they've got global governance in place before that contract comes up for review
1: where does this place the Governments that we know of now, how does that affect their power or indeed has the American government, English, UK government have any power left? It's
2: effectively, um, government by proxy. And this is the purpose of uh, groups such as the Bilderberger Group, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission. I mean, what these um, these groups are there for uh, is to make sure that all of the senior players within the industrial military political complex are well-briefed, well-informed, and on message. And if they go off message, I mean, Matthew Simmons, and here's a classic case, Matthew Simmons is a real hero because Matthew Simmons was a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. And whilst he was trumpeting the mythology of peak oil, he was you know, absolutely, of course, um, on message because the Rockefellers and co and the uh, the global oil industry needs to create this myth that oil is a finite resource um, and therefore, we can sort of sow the, the, uh, the ideas of artificial scarcity, and, and that helps us keep the price up. But Matthew Simmons, when the price started to dump after um, uh, June of 2000, July of 2008, Simmons, I think, had an epiphany, and he realized the magnitude of the manipulation and the fact that uh, oil is not in any way, shape or form a, uh, a finite resource. And, and you know, perhaps that one of the reasons that we're still suffering from the effects of this is exactly this reason. Um, so Matthew Simmons actually turned his attention away from investment in the oil industry. And of course, he set up the Ocean Energy Institute um, in Maine, where one of his primary goals was to establish offshore wind farms and to um, provide, his goal was to provide all electricity for Maine from offshore wind farms by the year 2020. And of course, at that point, Matthew Simmons became an enemy of the oil industry and he was no longer on message with the Council on Foreign Relations. And of course, Matthew was extremely vociferous right from the get go. I mean, he was the highest profile individual within the US uh, who was going on uh, Bloomberg and MSNBC and, and various other uh, national stations and explaining why it was that he believed that uh, BP and the federal government were effectively not only lying but were deceiving the, uh, the population of the U.S. and in particular the Gulf Coast over their efforts to, uh, to clean up the, the spill. He was making the observation that it was all effectively a charade and that um, you know, effectively they, um, <laughs> they, they were not um, doing what they claimed to be doing. Matthew Simmons was also the guy who identified the fact that after all the shipping was withdrawn from the Gulf because of the apparent threat of um, Tropical Storm Bonnie. So consequently, when the shipping was removed, the live camera feeds from the uh, uh, the ocean floor were shut down for a few days. And when the cameras came back on, of course, BP had said that they had used the opportunity to uh, drop their top hat on over the spewing well. But Simmons identified the fact that when the live feeds were switched back on, the lambda coordinates were no longer the same. And in fact, the lambda coordinates on the feed that was supposedly coming from the capped well were actually coming from the well that had been shut in, you know, earlier in the year. Uh, which, because, in fact, the well that blew was the second attempt to, to drill a well at this particular location. So Matthew Simmons actually went on to... In fact, I have the, um, the transcripts and the, uh, the audio of the interview that he gave um, on I think it was uh, July twenty eighth, I think it was July twenty ninth, where he made the statement that basically BP were lying, they hadn't capped the well, the cameras were not on the the well that BP were claiming, and that basically the uh, the whole thing was a charade, and in his opinion the well was actually still spewing oil into the Gulf, and of course nine days later Matthew. Uh, was found drowned in his hot tub in Maine.
1: Let me ask you, gentlemen, in the last 15 minutes, it was a very important time in the program, to look at solutions here. We don't want to scare people. We want to make sure that people receive a good education and can make up their own minds. But let me just ask you, Pat O'Brien, you are in Florida. Do you not think it's time for you and others to leave that state? Are you still with us, Pat?
2: No, he's
3: left. He's moving. There there we go. Uh, am I back with you?
1: What is the best advice that you can give to people? And certainly in your own situation, are you still willing to stay in Florida?
3: I'm not really. We actually, uh, we are looking uh, to move. We know of what the threat is. We know because of the many scientists that I'm speaking to in Louisiana some of them that i can't even speak to now because they're under a confidential agreement with bp and can't speak to us anymore that we're early on the information that i have is serious information that uh, we are in a threat in the gulf state area that it is being covered up and frankly i'm scared to death with what i know for my family i have gone to my family and some of my friends have actually moved out of the state and we are looking to move out of the state as well. I love the state, but uh, frankly, we are seeing uh, the many reports of fish just popping up dead in various places. We're finding out that the east coast of Florida might even be more in jeopardy than the west coast of Florida because of the fact that it has come around the horn around Key West and has come up closer to the east coast of the state than that it got to the west coast and that these fumes can go some 200 miles. So the more we get into it, the more concerned I have become. My wife and I are looking. We're a little bit older, so we're not concerned. If I had children right now today, I would be out of the state today.
1: What is the solution here? What is the best advice that we can give to people?
2: Well, it, it, obviously, I mean, I do understand that uh, yeah, it's extremely difficult to move from an area that you know, you've know you grown up in or moved to. I mean, there's many people, of course, uh, who have retired to Florida. Florida attra- has been in the past a very attractive proposition for retirees, along with the likes of Arizona and Nevada um you know because of the uh, the climate, no sales tax, et cetera, et cetera, so I appreciate how difficult it is but i I agree with pat i mean you know right now if you have children, then you know the the sensible thing to do has to be to leave and and if you can't think of a way in which you can finance that for yourselves, then there are charities and go Google this. uh, There are charities and and look at the website of Anita Stewart and Rebecca Campbell um, and these, these activists that are actually helping people who want to move out of the state. The property market in Florida has tanked. You know, there's over 200,000 people in Florida who are not paying their mortgages right now because they have moved into negative equity and and basically they're just waiting for the bailiffs to come along and and evict them. But the reality is, you know, if one person refuses to pay their mortgage, they're a social pariah. 200,000 people refusing to pay their mortgages, that's a movement. And, you know, those people uh, in some cases have literally taken the decision – but, um, you know, they'll just wait for the bailiff and, uh, and it, it, there's not enough bailiffs in the whole of the U.S. to come and evict 200,000 people. So, you know, it's going to take a while. And the money that they save by not paying their mortgage in the meantime, they can then use that to hopefully go and start a new life somewhere else in the U.S. But for those people who do elect to stay... You know, I think that I would agree with Pat, you know, and and say, look, please don't take what we're saying. We're not trying to scaremonger. We're simply trying to encourage people to take responsibility for themselves, for their families and look at the information and make informed decisions. So if they do elect to stay, then it's really important that they understand the potential risks to themselves and obviously to their family members. But most importantly, I mean, they've got to start thinking about the quality of the food and the water. You know, look at the water sources um, and can they get bottled water from elsewhere in the States? I mean, certainly, and, and I, I hate to say it, but, um, you know, I've spoken with shrimpers from the Gulf area who have told me that they will never eat another shrimp in their lifetime. Because they appreciate, they're right there on the ground, and they appreciate the magnitude of the ecological disaster, and and they can't see it, um, you know, repairing itself. I'm sure it will over time. The Earth is a wonderful biosphere, and it can do anything given time. But you know, in the in the short term of five, ten, fifteen years, I mean, there's still problems in Prince William Sound. From the Exxon Valdez disaster, and you know that's uh 20 odd years ago. So, I would encourage people to you know take a very long hard look, and if they do decide to stay, then start to really put some thought into the origins of their food and water.
1: I think that we have to be supremely confident, solution led moving forward. It is clear particularly in my world, in talking to the people that I do, that 2012 December has a great significance. It is a world now where we're seeing a major development of community consciousness. With that said, Ian, how do you think that that community consciousness can come alive and react to, respond to, and support not only the country of America, but other countries around the world to open their eyes and save what little we have left.
2: I think that, unfortunately, um, the great tragedy is that humanity has to get the proverbial size nine up the rear end before it actually starts to take any action. And, and there is no doubt. In fact, I sent a newsletter out a couple of days ago, and I, I called it 2011, the year of the great awakening. But in that, I made the observation that we're also going to have to endure phenomenal trauma. I mean, obviously, the Gulf Coast is certainly getting its fair share. We're seeing you know, a, a trauma of a different nature in um, uh, eastern Australia with the floods there. You know, obviously, we've got the financial meltdown, which is uh, creating a, a trauma all of its own. And I'm sure there's, uh, there's far worse to come. But you know, this may be our saving grace because, you know, just the same as on a personal level, when we go through phenomenal personal trauma, you know, it's a learning opportunity. And we have the opportunity to reflect and, uh, you know, consider and innovate and find a way through that personal trauma. And we have exactly the same opportunity, as you rightly say, David, on a community level. So it is important in the first instance that we take care of ourselves because if we're not in the best of health, then you know, we're not really much use, as it were, to, uh, to the community. And in fact, we do become potentially a burden on the community. So it's important that we do focus on you know, our own well-being and the well-being of our families in the first instance. But once that's taken care of, then I absolutely concur. And you know, fortunately, what is occurring, and through the power of, of the web, you know, people, like-minded people, are coming together and, uh, you know, trying to find solutions. And I know that in the Gulf Coast, and I'm sure, Pat, I'm sure you're familiar with some of the names of the activists uh, down there. And, you know, this, this community of, of activists, uh, which is spread right around the, uh, the, the coastline of the Gulf of Mexico, right from you know, the Houston area, right around to the Keys. And one way or another, yeah, we will come through. There is no question, absolutely. I mean, humanity is an incredibly, incredibly compassionate, innovative creative power and and i believe that uh, you know what's occurring right now although we don't see it in the in the short term but actually what's occurring is potentially a tremendous opportunity for us
1: i would definitely concur ian crane pad o'brien thank you for joining me today
3: thank you david Thanks, David.
1: And to our listeners today, I do hope that you have enjoyed and received much information on this program. You can receive information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org.
0: Dot com.